0: From the Orange County Fire Authority, this is the Pass Along Podcast, where we address firefighter issues from top to bottom, from your helmet down to your boots. Now, here's your host, OCFA's Assistant Chief of Organizational Planning, Mike Schrader.
1: Welcome back to the OCFA's Pass Along Podcast. This episode features an interview with Battalion Chief Jeff Hoey, fresh off of the um, California Task Force 5 deployment to Houston to assist during Hurricane Harvey.
2: They were basically dispatching the boats out to addresses we were getting. Um, Houston Fire hadn't been answering 911 calls, and so folks were driving up to us on the freeway, um, driving the wrong way, and just coming up and saying, look, my mom's trapped in the attic, this is her address, can you go get her? And that's how people were getting rescued. If they weren't able to get out on their house or get up on the roof, um, they were, we were rescuing them like that.
1: All right, but before we get into that, uh, let's review some of the news and noteworthy items here at the Orange County Fire Authority. As mentioned before, California Task Force 5 is back from their deployment to Houston. Uh, They returned on the evening of September 7th to a large group of family, friends, coworkers, and community members here at the RFOTC. Once they got checked in and demobed, they were reunited with their families and uh, praised for their efforts.
0: As the program manager on behalf of the Orange County Fire Authority, welcome home, Task Force 5. Job well done.
1: I want to say a big thank you to, of congratulations to everyone that was out there for a job well done, as well as to everyone who stayed behind here to protect the uh, communities that we protect here with Orange County Fire. And um, certainly with folks getting forced, um, not only do we have the California Task Force 5 out and they're uh, 40 plus members. But we also had another 50 plus members out on strike teams and overhead assignments throughout the state of California. So just kudos to them and then also to those who were backfilled behind those members that were out of county as well. Um, in totality, uh, we had upwards of hundred folks um, out on special assignments, serving other communities other than our own. And uh, I think that goes to the, both the national response system as well as the state and regional and local response system, the collaboration that we have um, through the incident management system and the uh, joint sharing of resources. And what a neat uh, thing that is. I, I know the public expects that of us. Um, it doesn't always happen as smoothly as here it does here in California, uh, but we're certainly proud of our members who served uh, both out of state, out of county, and here at home. So thank you. On Monday, OCFA held its uh, annual 9-11 uh, ceremony here out front and just to honor those who uh, died 16 years ago in the terrorist attacks.
2: Today
0: we honor the nearly 3,000 innocent lives that were taken from us. And those who so notably aided their fellow citizens in America in a time of need. We rededicate to the ideals that define our country and unite us as one and we commemorate all the heroes who lost their lives saving others.
1: Special thanks uh, to Mark Stone for his solo on uh, Amazing Grace uh, on the bagpipes and also to the Honor Guard who, as usual, um, between the, uh, the piping of uh, Mark Stone and the Honor Guard and their polish and prestige uh, just brings a certain sense of professionalism but also results in the, in the rank and file as well as professional staff just swelling with pride to be part of this organization and uh, especially when we have members from the public attending as well as elected officials to commemorate the 9-11 events uh, we just want to say a special thanks to them for their participation and all that they do um, the spit and polish and shine to make us look so good as an agency but also to bring that prestige uh, to this agency that um, we so thank them for and uh, just on 9-11 it's just another great reminder as i spoke to my two young boys uh, who attended 13 um that night when i got home from work that freedom's not free and uh, it is not the weight of the full federal government that responds to these kind of incidents it's the local firefighters and so we just want to say thank you to again to uh, all the members of the fire authority and really to the fire service members throughout the country and what they do on a daily basis all right wanted to uh, just briefly uh, shift gears and update you on the uh the latest with uh, the traffic collision that occurred uh, with Battalion Chief Ken Harrison and Matt Levesque while they were serving uh, up in Northern California. As you recall uh, they were involved in a very serious car accident um, and uh, subsequently were treated locally and then eventually we welcomed them home, uh, Matt at uh, Long Beach Airport and then Kenny at uh, or Chief Harrison at uh, John Wayne and I was in attendance for both and um, it's we take it for granted when we, um, when we go into harm's way to serve others and it was just neat to see the support both from the community and the agency to come alongside of them in their time of need and we're looking forward to a time when both of them will be back to 100% par on their health um, and in the interim we have established liaisons for both of them to assist in meeting those needs that we always talk about in the fire service. Uh, and we need to make sure that we come alongside of them in every way, whether it's clipping um, the, the trees or the grass or whatever we can do to help them in their time of need, we will do. So we have liaisons, uh, Battalion Chiefs uh, Kenny Dossi and Tim Perkins for uh, Chief Harrison and then Mike Sheehan uh, for Matt Levesque. Go ahead and go direct with those guys and there'll be more uh, information that will follow uh, to get you uh, into the loop as to how to support them, whether it be meals or, uh, as I mentioned before, assistance at their home or with other ancillary duties. So again, uh, Ken and Matt, we love you guys and we're looking forward to you guys getting back to full health. On Wednesday, September 6th, Acting Fire Chief Dave Anderson sent out a, uh, the fourth organizational update thanking Division Chief Cruz for helping during the transition. Chief Cruz is now officially going back to the Operations Support Division uh, Chief spot. As most of you know, during the upcoming uh, board meeting on September 28th, the board directors will finalize their choice for the interim fire chief. And the way things are shaping up, it looks like the process to select the permanent chief won't be finished until early 2018. Uh, Once we get the new permanent fire chief on board, it will be up to that person to uh, decide the direction of the agency in more specific nature. And we'll have to wait and see how that Uh, All shakes out, but in the meantime, your executive team is uh, working tirelessly to continue to provide the best care for our citizens and support you, both in professional staff and operations, in doing your job. All right, enough of that. Uh, Without further ado, here's Jeremy Vallone talking to Battalion Chief and Task Force Leader Jeff Hoey about what it's like and what was their experience like, rather, uh, in their time in Houston.
0: Good morning. Thanks for joining us uh, on the OCFA podcast today. My name is Jeremy Vallone. I'm an engineer on Truck 34, and joining us today is going to be Battalion Chief Jeff Hoey, and we're going to be discussing the deployment uh, to the Hurricanes in Texas. Thanks for joining us, Chief Hoey.
2: Thanks for having me here. I appreciate it.
0: Uh, It's great that you're here. We're going to listen to some audio that uh, Chief Hoey sent to uh, Chief Petro on the 29th of August, and it would be their third day of operation with regard to the current situation how things were playing out.
2: So here it is. Hey Mike, there's too much to type so I figured I'd try to just send you a voice memo. So things have gone off the charts beyond anything. The floodwaters are now above any recorded level from what we're getting. And uh, the inundation is unreal. uh, We lost one IRB a little while ago, tore out the bottom. Uh, Chapman's running an LZ. Uh, we have two customs of Border Patrol, Blackhawks that are coming in. They came in. Somehow they heard that we had an issue. They came in, and they're helping out. I just called uh, the uh, National Guard contact I got from the day one. He's bringing in uh, a slick, so one without a hoist, uh, just to haul bodies. And we're stuffing them as full as we can. We're landlocked now pretty much with no support um, for people. One of the teams is trying to get in, but we might have to fly people in to assist us. The guys are trashed. Um, I'm worried about them right now, um, but they're killing it. They're doing great. So we're uh, if we can get a team in here to replace us by three, and I can feed the guys and bet them tonight, I think we'll be good tomorrow. Uh, but right now the guys are, are going, and it's um, it's 100% effort all the way around. It's hard to even just get the guys to feed them. So um, the water's uh, continuing to rise. Uh, now it was a foot an hour. Now it's about uh, it's about a half a foot an hour. Um, the shelter we've been running, um, if, it ra- if it raises another 8 feet, we're going to lose this shelter and lose this LZ and have to move for our position. So, uh, it's, um, this is all out, man. It's uh, definitely a historic event. So, uh, send me a text that you got this and hopefully it works through. See ya, bye.
0: That sounds pretty
2: intense, Chief Hoey. It, uh, it was unreal.
0: So, uh, if you don't mind, I mean that gave us a really good idea of kind of what you're going through at that moment. Um, Could you kind of briefly walk us through the first two two to three days of deployment for those of us who have, A, never gone through it or who weren't there, how it works from the time you guys get the call to deploy through the first few days of operations?
2: Sure. Um, The guys uh, got their uh, activation order on the evening of uh, Thursday. And uh, so there was a a roster that was kind of like that, but it wasn't solid. But they were able to make the phone calls and get everybody to assemble. And so as soon as that activation order comes in, there's a ton of pieces that have to go into effect that are already pre-established. And so we have our mobilization manual that we follow in order to get everybody uh, together. And that's picking up all the drugs for the uh, medical cash, um, getting all the vehicles, uh, final load and on the road to headquarters. Um, training did an amazing job getting everybody medical, medically checked out here before they left. Um, so there's a lot of pieces that go into mobilizing the task force and so uh, that was the first night Thursday you know, we hit the road after midnight uh, Thursday night and so each vehicle had uh, three drivers and except for the bigger of two but um, we're driving straight through to get to San Antonio was our goal and so we were off the road every two to three hours depending And switching drivers, fueling up the light vehicles, um, the big rigs can definitely take a a longer run. Um, So uh, just before uh, we're getting to San Antonio, we had one of the rigs uh, blow a turbo. And so it was actually in the evening. And so Texas is a long state. It takes an entire day to drive across Texas, basically. And so uh, we're in Texas, and the guys found a 24-hour shop uh, to get that turbo fixed. And so our mechanic, Dan, uh, just did an amazing job there. He hung out with the guys and helped to get it uh, repaired and on the road. And so we arrived into uh, San Antonio, less uh, uh, the uh, heavy vehicle, and our mechanic. Uh, we got into San Antonio in the morning, uh, their time, four in the morning, and uh, got into our point of assembly, which is in, uh, was at uh, the AT&T Center there. And that's once you get there, now you're, now you're into the system. And so I uh, checked in with the Point of Assembly folks, got situated, figured out where we were doing feedings, where briefings were gonna be, and got, um, got all the personnel from the task force situated in an area that could sleep. And so in a stadium, you picture like the Anaheim Pond, um, the floor was covered in, in uh, uh, cots for all the other task forces and other uh, troopers that were there. And so our task force was uh, lined up uh, where the common uh, hallways are, where all the concession stands are. And so we were sleeping in one of the hallways, um, was where we were getting set up for that piece. But during the day, um, the guys reestablished all of the, uh, the logs cache and just to make sure we were ready to deploy and all the stuff we needed for water rescue was up front ready to go. And, um, and then so that night, after getting everybody fed, showered, um, we were all together ready to go. And then we had done a briefing with the ops and uh, division soups. They were, hadn't done any jobs yet, but they were waiting. Um, And so uh, everybody bedded down to hit the sack. And so about three in the morning, uh, I woke up to see our division soup walking down the hallway towards us. And he just leaned over to me and said, we need you guys right now. He goes, just confirming you have the IRBs, the inflatable rescue boats. And um, so, yeah, we do. And he goes, okay, uh, based on that, I need you guys right now to go to Houston. Um, They have three to four hundred 911 calls unanswered. Um, and we need you guys. You're going to be our first task force in, and so you'll report back and let us know what you got. And I'll give you your contact once you're on the road. But I need you guys to hit the road. And so I walked around and woke everybody up and uh, told them, you know, 15 minutes, all your cots and everything down to the vehicles. 30 minutes, we're on the road. And uh, so 3:30, we left uh, the AT&T Center heading for San Antonio, or excuse me, from San Antonio to Houston. And of course, on the way, we're seeing more floodwaters. We're seeing more stuff. Um, The storm, like as we were at San Antonio, the clouds are flying by above because we're in the outskirts of the hurricane. And so now we're driving into it. And uh, so rain's coming down, there's more uh, turbulent air, and then we start getting into tornado warnings. Um, So our phones are going off the closer we get to Houston for tornado warnings that we're actually going through the areas where the tornadoes are on the ground. Um, We didn't have any affect us uh, at that time. Um, but uh, it definitely brought an air of caution going, okay, where's our safe zone? Where do we go? So we fueled up just outside of Houston uh, for our last stop and then uh, made our way in. They wanted us to report to one uh, center downtown, the Reliance Center, but we were looking on all the uh, freeway cameras, um, the wonder of, of the internet. And so we're looking at it um, at Apple Maps and Google Maps and trying to find the best route in. And we see that the, where they want us to go to assemble, we can't get to. And so we've chosen a stadium outside of Houston and pulled up there to find a whole bunch of state troopers already assembled there. Um, we parked our cache alongside them, and then uh, we parted off with, uh, with a rescue team with the boats with 22 personnel. And I was in contact now with the division soup we are going to work for, which is down near Hobby Airport on the uh, southeast side of Houston. And he had people trapped in attics already, and he, all he wanted was us and, and get down there to help out and so uh, based on that we hit the road and looking at our maps we're trying to find a way to get there um, and we ended up having to get off the freeway because the freeway on the 10 was already underwater in certain areas taking side streets and we we're able to get on the 610 freeway to start heading south but we had to get on an off-ramp in order to do it because the on-ramp was already flooded and so we got on the off-ramp Got all of our our cash, no heavy vehicles, but um, the boats and um, and a couple of trailers with the equipment to support. And uh, as we're heading down the 610, we come up and at the Byers uh, Bayou, the freeway's 12 feet underwater. And so we got there, and there's already people floating out in the water. There's cars that've driven into it and they're floating, and there's uh, civilians on the side of the freeway, um, in the residences nearby floating in the water already. And so uh, talked to a state trooper that was there and. He's like, with this flooded, you have no way to get to where you're going. It's impossible. And so uh, based on that, I called back our division soup and he gave me some numbers to talk to local district chiefs that run the area on both sides of the freeway. And uh, both of them needed help, uh, but they wanted me to get to their, uh, their station where their little command post was and we couldn't get off the freeway to go find them. Every time we drove off, once the vehicle was up to the headlights, just turned back around, got back and went back towards the freeway because the waters were rising and we couldn't get to them. And I don't I don't think they knew it until we got got back on the phone and said, We cannot reach you. It's impossible. And so uh, finally got the permission to engage. And that was the big thing because we, we don't wanna operate outside of Houston fire or who we're gonna work for. And so they gave us a permission to engage and we, we uh, ended up um, working uh, it would be the west side of the 610 freeway, near a street called Beachnut, And looking at the water rising the whole time, our guys put their boats in right away and got operating. And so we had uh, Chris Stevens as our rescue team manager running the operation. And eventually they just needed more people uh, to help get out and so uh, Jack Parishow was uh, with me. And so he took over running the op and uh, with Brian Little uh, as, our, as our recording guy that was just doing amazing on tracking everything. Um, they were basically dispatching the boats out to addresses we were getting. Um, Houston Fire hadn't been answering 911 calls. So people were calling 911. In fact, I tried once uh, to see if I get a ladder truck out to do a rescue I had it off the side of the freeway on an overpass out of a guy that was holding onto a light pole below. Um, and I just went in and answered. And so folks were driving up to us on the freeway, um, driving the wrong way and just coming up and say, look, my mom's trapped in the attic. This is her address. Can you go get her? And that's how people were getting rescued. If they weren't able to get out on their house or get up on the roof, um, they were, we were rescuing them like that. And so, uh, we we needed support and, uh, Utah, um, at first nobody could get to us. And we had our mechanic, Dan Davis, eventually got through. He found a route to get through, but going back, he almost didn't make it back to base. And then after he got uh, away from us, after giving us some supplies, uh, that was it. We were landlocked. And so uh, from that point on, we had, we couldn't get the rest of the team to us. Um, Utah somehow got to us, uh, Utah task force one. And so we put their boats in next to us. They worked under. our uh, basically running a division is what we were doing. Um, and so they were following everything that Jack showed was giving them the addresses and stuff. So we ran our own division out there for quite a while. And as the guys were doing that, my whole purpose as a task force leader is looking out for their safety and then trying to organize the bigger picture. And so uh, I don't think I've ever been on my phone that much in my life, um, calling different people and getting phone calls from people I'm, that I'm like, I don't even know how you got my number, but I'm great to talk to you. And so uh, I, trying to get buses to move the, the people we're rescuing, all we could do is put them on high ground. Um, there was no, sh- I couldn't get any shelter locations and they had no shelters open that we could reach. And so now we're getting up to 50 and 100 people on the freeway. Um, eventually we pulled out 400 people. And so trying to move those people out, the civilians that were driving up in their vehicles, they started moving people out toward. Uh, they could get them off the freeway to homes or like that. Uh, We had a small uh, group of National Guard that was trying to get down to Hobby Airport, which I think they had like seven vehicles. Uh, They thought they were gonna make it, they tried to drive into the water, Um, they flooded one of their Humvees, they backed out and went, okay we can't get there, we'll help you now. And so one of the guys, uh, his pastor had a church around the corner that was not underwater, and so his pastor opened the church and that became the shelter. Uh, because going through all channels, I couldn't get a shelter open. And I couldn't get buses. Um, I couldn't get high water vehicles. Um, All we could do, the one Houston engine made it out to us and I asked him to go back and bring out a roll of Visqueen, And so he brought it out. And so we had people under the canopy that we have on one of the trailers for cover. Um, And then we just had a giant sheet of plastic and as many people they could get underneath it just to shelter from the rain because it was dumping.
0: So Uh, Chief, uh, you were originally deployed and they said hey we have three to four hundred unanswered 911 calls yeah plus you have people coming up to you wherever you stop or wherever you guys deployed yes and you have people who are just passing by that need to be rescued yes so what was your direction to your guys in your rescue boats i mean are we going to the addresses given or are we just i don't want to say independent action because that can sometimes have a negative connotation but did you just say, hey, go out there and just help as many people as you can, or was there a structured deployment model, if you will?
2: It's a great question, and we trained on the structured deployment model, um, and that was impossible because of the, the size of the area we had. And so when we did get a, a confirmed address, we would dispatch one of the boats to that address. Um, the rest of the time was the initial instructions were the boats Go as close to you as you can to Bayer's Bayou, but don't cross it. Um, it's fast-moving water. Um, a couple of years back, uh, Houston uh, had a boat turnover and lost some civilians in that uh, bayou. And so uh, we didn't want the guys going across it, but get as close as you can That's the deepest water and start bringing people out from the deepest water and go to shallower as you work your way back. And so that was for initial instruction, but if we had an address, we would go get them. Um, we eventually, we eventually had to go rescue one of the Houston engine companies that was in the back of a dump truck and had 20 uh, people that they had rescued. The dump truck failed. And so their chief called me and said, hey, here's the intersection they're at. And so our boats ended up going out and getting all of them out to safety. Um, but yeah, it's a, the, the 911 phone calls that were called in, we never got those addresses. And so the ones, they went unanswered and, and we never got anything to follow up on. So really all we had were the people walking up to us. Um, and that was until about three or four in the afternoon. We engaged there about 10 a.m. And about three or four in the afternoon, we had a Houston uh, captain come out to be a division soup, And he had some addresses from, they were called in in the morning, but they weren't anything recent. And so we were just trying to follow up with what he had to try to you know, clean out what they had in the, in the log. But the whole time the boats were out, they would just leave and they would come back loaded with people.
0: Organized chaos, truthfully.
2: Pretty much. Yeah. I mean,
0: that's how it is. Yeah. Um, so I, in that, you were talking about in the message from, or to Chief Petra, you talked about how quickly the water was rising. And then I spoke to you earlier before our interview and you talked about how you had potentially conceded to losing the entire cache The Task Force 5. So. Um, From a supervisor role, this has got to be challenging because now you have to literally account for a safety plan for the guys operating on your team. So what was the plan for you guys um, if worst came to worst?
2: Yeah, great question. And so kind of what goes along with that is when we were engaged on the 610 freeway, we were the first task force from FEMA to engage out there. And the uh, operations chief called me and was, was asking, what's our plan? And we didn't have all the heavy vehicles, so I didn't know what was happening back at Tully Stadium at the time, where the, all the heavies were at. Um, I talked to them a couple times, and they were doing okay. Uh, but where we were at, with the water rising out there, um, he asked what our plan was, and basically had an overpass uh, about a mile and a half back that was about 18 feet above the water level. And so that was our, our safe zone, basically. Um, there was nothing in the projections that it was going to take the water up that high and it would have to cover such a large, expansive area that we didn't expect it to go that far. Um, but getting eventually it was going to be disengaging where we were at and just back up to that high ground, and we could work from there. Um, worst case scenario, I mean, we have our pace plan. And so the emergency uh, part was uh, during that operation I got a phone call from uh, a chief with the uh, National Guard military side, he was running all the uh, helicopters for the military and the the, um, government that were out flying around. Um, They were doing hoist rescues everywhere. And so he asked how he could help us out. And at the time we couldn't land a Black Hawk on the freeway we're at, it's too narrow. Um, And also we couldn't control the traffic. Otherwise we would airlift the people off. Um, But he was, uh, I got his number, and so that was the other part to where he was the emergency plan. We had a spot back at that high ground, it was a little bit wider and uh, with a confident pilot, he could have put it down and got us out, but it would have been us leaving everything behind.
0: That's got to be a little nerve-wracking for a supervisor.
2: It's uh, it, The decisions we were making were stuff you don't train for, um, and it, it truly was, you're doing the best with what you can with the situation that continues to degrade, and it's um, and its degrading in ways you just don't picture. Um, being landlocked in Houston, you don't think about so, um, and so that, that brought everything up a level. And so like my, my ability to engage in the rescue operations was nil. Uh, all I was doing was talking to every, the, the state EOC, um, DC would call to check on things, uh, the ops, the division soup, Houston fire chief, and then uh, our force protection that we had assigned to us from the U.S. Marshals, um, they couldn't get to us. And so it's just trying to handle everything and have that plan working so when the water did come down, can we get buses out here to move everybody? If we have a medical aid, how are we gonna get them out? And um, on that day, we didn't have any medical, well, actually, we moved out two quadriplegics and that became a challenge to get them into a vehicle. We could get them site. We had to keep them on site for probably an hour till civilian vehicles with nurses could get out there to move them. So um, our doc was working his tail off. I mean, everybody worked, safety worked, every, everybody was working and it was smooth. Uh, because of all the personnel were fully engaged.
0: Speaking of that, um, we had talked about some interesting things you encountered, or some of your uh, your rescue squad guys encountered on the boats. Uh, we talked about, uh, I think you said Dave King, picked yeah. up a snake, You've uh, floating balls of fire ants. Yeah. What else did you guys encounter that was kind of unexpected that you couldn't even conceive before deployment?
2: Uh, out where we were working on uh, that first day in the 610 we kind of had the standard stuff except you know porter potties floating by containers floating by um, you knew everything was in the water uh, but when we were up in kingwood which was day two and three of the operations that's where we're up into areas that were more remote um, from a lake and so that's where we had water moccasins in the water uh, we had the uh, balls of fire ants um, each ball is three to four thousand fire ants and they are all looking for a place to find home, someone to climb up onto. Um, And then we knew there was alligators out there. And so after we uh, finished operations in Kingwood, as the water receded, one of the homes um, in the area we were working, the homeowners came home to an alligator in their home. And so they're out there, we knew they were out there. And uh, so it's just an awareness piece. We don't quite prepare for that part, so.
0: Uh, yeah, I don't know what to say to that. That's, that's something you can
2: never imagine.
0: Um, so the third day, um, up to the third day, was really just chaos. The water continued to rise. Now, how far into the operation did things start to stabilize, if you will?
2: Well, um, day two in the morning was was kind of okay, but then they had all the dams that were getting too high. And so when they released the water, they sent us up to the Kingwood area where they knew Lake Houston would, would flood and it would come up. And so that night, us in Tennessee, one moved another uh, about four, 440 people, I think, we came up to out of a bunch of homes that were, uh, were flooding already and would be eventually submerged. And so we worked until dark doing that. Um, and that, was, that wasn't chaos because it was, it was coming up slow at the time. Uh, but the fire chief that worked up in that district, uh, he was there for the 94 floods, and he had drawn out to me where it went to then. Um, and so he goes, you know, they're telling us it's not going to get that high. But this is where it got to then, so you can see in the inundation, it's not just a couple of streets, it's it's that's thousands of homes, um, and so after seeing that piece, we went to that night. We got to bed around 11 or midnight, and we were sleeping on the floor of a church because we couldn't get back to base still, um, and so we're all on the hardwood floor of this one church, and at three in the morning, a Houston cop came in and. Said, so you guys gotta get up. We have people stuck in attics everywhere right now. We have at least five or six. Was his first comment. I think at five or six, and he's in here waking everybody up for that. Okay, five or six, we got it. And I mean, one team can do that, no problem. Um, but uh, he was, he it, he he had already seen the water coming up, and so he, that's why he was pretty uh, agitated, I guess, or anxious. And so once we all got together, we all got up went over to Houston 102 where we had some, our boats were over there and got the rest of the guys up. We moved on down uh, Lake Houston Parkway. And from the line, the fire chief had told me where the water would get, it was beyond there. And so he gave me the high water mark from 94 and we couldn't even get to that intersection. We were a whole intersection uh, back to the west. And so that was the, that was the chaos. I mean, that day, um, I think I've been tested in my, in my career a number of times, uh, but I'd just say there's probably three that I would say incident-related to running stuff. Um, they've been extremely challenging, and uh, two, of the, two of the three, one was day one on the 610 freeway, and then for sure in Kingwood, that topped everything. Um, we were couldn't get support. We ended up being landlocked again. We were watching the water rise a foot an hour. Uh, from the time we started operations, we're putting boats in the, wa- in the water in the dark. In um, comms, our uh, radios, as soon as you go around the corner, we lose communication. And so from a task force leader's perspective, uh, my stomach wasn't settled at all because I'm watching boats go away and I'm asking them to work in tandem. But as soon as they turn the corner, I don't know where they're going to. I don't have the address they're going to. Um, they might just be going out to canvas a street because they said there's people everywhere. And that's exactly what they were doing. So some were hitting addresses we had, other ones were just driving and just going out and coming back full um, from all the different, from all the people we were pulling out. And so uh, the, that day, um, if I can touch on it for a minute, was uh, the creativity of the team definitely made it a successful operation. Um, the, we had two John boats and two IRBs working. Uh, with everybody in them. Uh, Jack Parishow, once again, was uh, was running tabs on everything. Uh, Brian Little right by his side uh, helping out. Uh, JP uh, was rebuilding motors. Uh, as the boats came in and had a problem, he was fixing them uh, with help of, uh, of uh, a couple task force members. I mean, it was all hands. Um, and the doc and uh, um, and our, uh, re- our uh, medical specialist, they Well, we're now patients were coming out. We had heart attack patients. We had COPD patients. We had uh, seizures. We were having all these other patients coming out with actual medical issues now. And so uh, Dave Kang, who was our safety, um, right next to where we launched the boats, there was a community center. And so Kang went over to one of the cops and said, Hey, do you have the key for that building? And they're like, yeah, we've been kind of staying there. He goes, well, I need the key now. We're going to go make this a point of refuge. And so, uh, so it ended up being our civilian collection point. And he opened it up, went inside, he posted where the ER was gonna be, where the people were gonna be, where there was a spot for the rescuers. Um, and we processed every, everybody through there. And so, uh, and Kang had set it up and just now we were moving people through. The civilians were showing up to help, were amazing. There was, uh, there was a line of, at one time I was looking, There's probably 70 boats that we're gonna put in um, on, the, on the lanes opposite where we we're working. Um, from just civilians that are going out. So it ended up being the civilian Navy showed up huge um, But uh, there again when they go to work, it's like they come up to me and it's like yeah I'm not authorizing anything for you. Go be a good neighbor and that's go be a Samaritan You can do all that all you want. We're not we're not telling you what you can or can't do Just bring them bring everybody here. And so we had boats flying from everywhere airboats um, any kind of boat you had would be bringing people back to where we were set up. And we moved them into the community center, uh, the doc, and uh, there was two volunteer nurses that hung out and helped the doc um, treat patients. We had one medic unit that was assigned to us. It was an hour turnaround to the hospital. And so they would pull up, we'd load them full, and they would leave. Um, uh, I talked about ordering the coroner um, for a uh, for temporary more where we were working. They got the hospice patient out, as I found out later, and in the ambulance, the hospice patient passed at the hospital and not with us then. but. Uh, Organizing that piece and we had no boats to move people or no uh, Buses to move people we had no shelters set up away from there And so as I drove around to go look at the area um, Of inundation there's two other areas that people were being brought out to and they're just standing on the side of the road and there's civilian boats working up there and um, And more were putting in and so I went up to that area and I found one guy that looked like he was pretty responsible so great here's my number you're now in charge of this area basically deputized them you are now division soup over here and i want you to call me every hour tell me where you got and i'm like what's a close school they found a close by school it's said, great take them all over there that's that's where your shelter is and went up to another area further up in this uh in this area of kingwood and uh, did the same thing with another guy and they were putting boats in and they were bringing everybody out to a different one and so we were making do with what we had. We knew we were landlocked and you couldn't, keep, uh, couldn't get people out. But then we started having the medical emergencies with no medic unit. And then I was hearing that the hospital was going to have to evacuate. And so we can't move people there. And so uh, I had a phone number for the National Guard, guy in charge of helicopters from the 610 freeway. So I called him and he picked up and we'd already had conversations in the past. He knew who I was. And I told him we were in a world of hurt. We needed help. And so uh, within a half an hour, We had two uh, Customs and uh, Border Patrol helicopters, Blackhawks, coming in. And then uh, within an hour and then an hour and a half after that, we had a total of four uh, National Guard uh, Blackhawks coming in. Um, So we're stuffing them as full as we could. Wayne Chapman, once again, you look at your team, uh, military helicopter manager, uh, away from being a crew chief with us for our helicopter, uh, he was running the LZ and just killing it. Um, at first he didn't have any helpers so he was booking back and forth from the shelter to the helicopters trying to load them. Uh, watching him run on that dry suit was fun, uh, but uh, so he got over there and he was he was working with all the helicopters and, and it ended up being that the Coast Guard was picking people off and they were coming into the LZ and unloading them at our spot to either be flown out by a Black Hawk or be taken away by civilians in their vehicles. Um, so the LZ that Wayne was running had a lot of traffic. Um, and so the, all this was kind of, it's what we needed, um, what we had to use. But the odd thing is we're working within another area's jurisdiction. Um, the chief that was, I talked to him later on that night, the Houston chief we were working under. Um, and he was just as grateful as all could be because he's like, I, I don't, if you guys weren't there, I don't know what we would have done with what we had. Um, but watching everybody act, engage and act like that was just amazing. And we kind of, we tore out uh, one of the boats, Um so we'd lost both IRBs from working um, later on in the day. And uh, of course, you're out there, you're running over cars, you're running over all kinds of stuff as the water level is so high. Um, and so it was a good time and Kane came up to me and just said, hey, I think we need to do a tactical pause. Um, this was the third night of limited sleep, um, three days of, of hard work by all the, everybody and, uh, and none of us were eating enough. Um, none of us were drinking enough. Um, I think the consensus was everybody's pee looked like iced tea. And so that was telling when you're out in the water in dry suits, you're not thinking about drinking because there's rainwater all over you. Um, But it was an issue we had to deal with. But we took a tactical pause and got into one of the rooms in the community center and sat in there for probably probably 20 minutes and just talked and kind of diffused a little bit. And it was odd because we're sitting in this room with all the windows out and you can see by then all the civilians were doing everything we were doing. And so they pretty much they had practiced they had it there was a guy that was in charge of unloading all the boats with 25 civilians helping them so we didn't really need to be there but taking that time out at that moment uh, was a critical piece that, that uh, dave king picked up on and kind of just taking care of everybody for a minute making sure everybody drank something and ate something and you kind of look out the windows and how surreal it was of what was happening outside um, and then of course to to cap it off we went back out and kept working with the two john boats now And uh, I get a phone call from, right at the time, we had uh, four helicopters on the deck with Wayne. He was loading them. And we get a phone call, or I get one, from the chief that's uh, our helicopter contact. And he's definitely um, on fire. And so he's like, I want all my helicopters off the ground immediately departing to the west. Get them off now. And so I got that, and it was a very clear message why and he goes there's an ammonium nitrate plant to on the other side of the lake from you that's going to explode Perfect. i go okay i'll call you back i want to know right where it's at figure it out i'll get your helicopters off so i get on the radio and i kind of laugh when i keyed it up because tim brooks was out with wayne chapman helping him load people i knew he had the radio so i yelled his name out and said priority so i knew that everybody's going to be listening And it's like yeah i'm actually going to say this on the radio yeah. Uh, so on top of everything, there's a ammonium nitrate plant across the lake that's going to explode. Get all the helicopters off the ground now, departing to the west immediately. So uh, so he and Wayne handled that piece. Um, I got funny stories back when the guys were on the boats and heard that radio traffic going, "Are you kidding?" Um, but my next piece is the task force leaders going, "Okay, are we in the blast zone? How close are we?" And this was a, a this is a real event, and it did end up blowing up. Um, figured out uh, Brian Little was on his phone looking for ammonium nitrate plants immediately and found one in Crosby and that was the closest one so we figured out what the amount they had We're out of the blast zone and then quickly looked up to see the clouds to make sure we're not going to get any plume coming across us which we weren't uh, but that ended our our air assets and so uh, and it wasn't a minute after that where we go okay I think we're good with where we're at that uh, the dock came on over because yeah, I just I just heard the the Conroe Dam has failed, and that's what is above us, and so it's like, okay, the decision point now is we're just going to leave the boats get in vehicles and drive away, and that's all we can do, um, and then try to find high ground and did Texas you have a clear
0: flat. did you have a clear place to go?
2: No no, that was going to be make it up right then. Go to go, go find a topo map, find the highest thing we could find and go and just get out of there. Um, definitely away from San Mateo River, which was, which was an area that comes down from the dam. So had that information. Well, Brian Little looks over and here, sure enough, there's a constable right around the corner that's from Conroe. And so uh, he went on over and said, Hey, is this true? And the guy goes, well, hold on. I, I know the dam keeper. So he calls the dam keeper. Um, instead of asking the question, checks up on his family, checks up on their homes. And we're like, Tell us what is the answer. Finally he goes, no, no, the fine. Okay, great. Um, and so those two moments in there were just like, are you kidding me? Here's another one. So one was real. Um, the plant blew up the next day. Um, and the other one was just information. You just had to fact find and check it out. But uh, by 3 o'clock that day, Texas Task Force 1 came in with a whole bunch of uh, boats. And basically we go, okay, we're turfering off to you. We're getting out of here. Um, you're in charge now and uh and here's you guys should start doing a grid search so we pretty much pulled everything out so looking at the numbers i know our boats alone uh jack had a count with brian little and we're 700 people we pulled out on our boats incredible and so it just you can't write it it was it was amazing
0: so then how did the rest of the deployment go from there it seems like that might have been the peak i hope because i can't imagine anything else added to your plate
2: yeah it was um that was pretty much, everybody was, was trashed. Uh, that night we made it back to camp, uh, made it back to the base, and the guys had set up at um, Katy. And, and the guys over there, um, they were busy with their own stuff. The, they, were, they were the ones that drove through, that drove the cash through high waters, trying to find a place that was high enough to not flood out and lose the whole cash. Um, they had done rescues, and I know you've already talked to Shane. Um, the whole other crew did incredible work at the other side. Um, and it, So it's just amazing we could be split in two and have two separate sections, and one that doesn't have boats, which was back at Katy. Um, and they were able to uh, figure out, see who's close by, other boats, and get on out and do their own rescues and set up a shelter and bring people and process them through. So um, the whole task force had been working, and so that night we got to go back to Katy, um, and they had cots already set up, and food, and it was one of the times where it's like, okay, we've been operating for three days away from each other, and uh, it's time to reunify. And so the good part, we got over there, had a great meal together, and then the next day, we had our first day off together, which really unified the team back. Um, It's hard when you're operating separate for a while. But um, we got over there, and uh, the first day we were back, uh, we deployed back over to Kingwood uh, to work with them and start doing the grid searches for them. But it wasn't – now the, the waters were receding, uh, and now it was just doing – it was a much bigger picture, and there was it wasn't – we weren't looking at rising waters anymore. And so having that, it's a more stable platform. It's light. Um, it's not raining as much because um, it, it rained – I think it stopped raining that day. And so we didn't have new water coming in on top of the, the other uh, – hurricane issue stuff so that made it more normal and a be, much better pace um, and so that i think that's where the normal normalcy kind of came into the rest of the deployment
0: so we typically um correct me if i'm wrong we don't typically train on splitting the task force that was an accidental occurrence right correct but we made it work yep um and to recap basically you guys drove 25 hours pretty much straight, correct, to get to Texas? Yeah, correct. Then you worked pretty much three days straight from that 3 a.m. deployment Yeah. to the fourth day where things started to normalize, and then you had, I guess, a formalized break at that point, reunited with the task force, um, and then things kind of stabilized from there. Is that is that kind of a, a basic recap?
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, so after looking back at this, uh, what would you say I know your top couple of lessons learned from this deployment. Now, if people don't already know, you were deployed to Oklahoma City as well, correct? that's correct. So um, if you could just tell us real quick about a couple of things you learned from this deployment and maybe how this deployment differed from Oklahoma City.
2: Well, Oklahoma City was our first task force deployment um, away from here. And so we were trying to figure out the whole system then. Um, what do you take? What don't you take? What are you buying when you leave? Um, back then when you're trying to still equip the team. So there was so many pieces that were in the beginning piece of the entire FEMA task force uh, scenario that um, there, there really no comparison. Um, on this deployment, uh, on the ability to get all the vehicles out and get all the equipment, it makes me appreciate the work that the logs guys do at 54's day and day out. Um, because they know what they have, they know how that stuff works, and they spend the time and they're keeping it ready all the time. And uh, it's great to see that work. Um, another uh, point as a task force leader is all of the people that train within the task force for their position, whether it's a rescue specialist, a medical specialist, a search team manager, rescue team manager, plans, uh, logs, um, as a task force leader, as we're functioning, um, the task force leader doesn't deal anything with that. It's kind of it's different to where you're touching on different pieces, but you're not, you're completely relegated to they know what they're doing. And, and not, I mean, everybody went above and beyond anything I could ever ask for um, to make the task force operate in every level. Um, didn't matter who it was. Uh, so I think that, uh, that the piece there was trusting your people that um, was easy to do and it was uh, easily recognized. Um, and then I think the part that was awesome that the entire team continued to do was a servant leadership. It didn't matter where you, what, per, who you were in the, in the team, um, you were serving whoever needed it right then. And servant leadership I believe in you know, wholeheartedly is a, a daily thing anyways, um, but to watch it work with a 45 person team uh, away and in a totally odd environment um, but to watch everybody engage that way, uh, it's a testament to the training that the guys do. Because they have built the relationships, they have the trust, and, uh, and from, from the point of working in the operations, uh, being separated, the leadership that took over and everybody functioning within that, um, to being reunified, to uh, at the last part, to where we're getting ready to mobilize um, out of uh, Rhodes Stadium where we were set up for our uh, BOO, the base of operations, There was, uh, I think there were 16 teams there, and most aren't used to demobilizing like we are in California or the Western United States with all the fires. And so when it comes to demob, what do we do? Well, we have our mechanic, uh, Dan Davis, who just killed it. And then I go outside and go look, and so they've already done the mechanical checks on us, and we're good to go. They're making repairs, Um, making field repairs bunch of them, uh, build, rebuilding the front end of one of the pickups that got uh, jacked up, uh, redoing bearings in the trailers, all that stuff that was messed up from the operations. And then from there, um, we're one of the only teams that had a mechanic. And so they asked if we could help. Well, we didn't just help, we did it. And so our guys ended up demoving doing the mechanical, mechanical checkout on every task force that was there. And so you walk outside and there's a line of 20 vehicles and they're just waiting in line to get demoved through mechanical, which is us. And so it just once again talks about we can do anything, but it's with that service uh, servant leadership attitude, the whole team had and it just made it awesome. That's impressive. They were an g- amazing group of people.
0: Kind of res- resonates with me is uh, for you to say that two of your most I guess stressful times were on this deployment. Anyone who knows you and follows what you do, you're a magnet for big incidents. So. To say that, that's impressive. Um, So upon return, uh, you guys were obviously under a lot of stress for three or four days. Um, What do we do as a task force or a department to address kind of the needs of the guys when they come home? Obviously they come home tired, stressed, probably I'm sure pumped and supercharged from this deployment, but um, what are we doing as a team and a department to kind of help these guys potentially address anything that
2: may come up from this? Great question and that's the department uh, is 100% on board with uh, firefighter behavioral health and um, as, uh, as we all know, know what a huge piece that is and as I know from my personal experience that I've had and the trauma that even surfaced after years and years out of Oklahoma City from that piece so uh, so the department was fully on board and ready uh, when we got back to headquarters the guys were welcomed back in just a wonderful way it was really neat uh, but once we got them inside, um, part of the demo process was just an initial think about these things from a counselor and the issues like in our deployment we really didn't see death Um, but um, as the the guys were going out initially in the boats they were having to make decisions on who they were picking up as the water was rising and so they were having to make decisions for women and children Um, a couple of the boats only had enough room to take kids because they didn't have enough room anymore for adults and so separating families, um, and then from there, when you get to the evacuation center, or at least the shelter we had to evacuate from, people getting moved out, and just all we saw was so many people that were hopeless. They had, they had everything they had was behind them. They don't know where they're going, and they're, they don't know what the next step is. And so the emotions of guys looking at that and finding that out, um, it's compassion, and and everybody had it. But that's one of the things that can surface later on, uh, putting yourself in their shoes, that stuff. So. Uh, the counselor spoke into those pieces in the beginning. Um, just say, here's, here's all the different things. Here's a whole bunch of pamphlets if you want to read up on this stuff. Um, I talked to everybody a little bit about my personal experience and don't don't be an idiot and, and disregard this stuff. It's real. Uh, and so from that, uh, we're going to have uh, in just a couple days here. So it's still, uh, matter of fact, it's tomorrow. Uh, we're having a debrief. It's voluntary. If anyone wants to come, uh, love to have them. But um, it's all strictly just going about the stresses that were encountered and what do you do from here. And so and it's for anybody that's on the task force and um, and it's, it's open. We'll have full counselors there, peer support team, all the different things that we can offer here uh, to help the guys uh, reintegrate back and deal with uh, whatever stresses and stuff they had from the incident. And so that debrief that they're going to do here uh, for the personnel that were uh, gone, it will be tomorrow, uh, Thursday, the 14th at 9 a.m. in the boardroom. And there'll be donuts and coffee and all that stuff provided. It's for both the team members and their families. As, um, I, I know that for me, is uh, my wife and kids picked up on issues I was having long before I realized them. And so the family members deal with, we always know whenever they see us go through a stressful thing, just a normal fire, where we have a rescue or we lose somebody, our families know what happened. They can see our, our, our countenance change. So, um, so they're all going to be there too.
0: That's a great thing to I offer hope. for those guys. Um, So it sounds like you did a lot more rescues, which is definitely a positive note uh, compared to Oklahoma City, which was more of the recovery aspect of it. Um, Is there anything else as far as uh, you can add to this deployment, things you took away besides? It sounds like you're, I mean, you're kind of, I'm looking at you now, you're gleaming with pride over the work your task force guys did. did. Um, I'm proud to be a a member of it. Um, But is there anything else as kind of a final uh, message for anybody?
2: I think um, the the scenario was exceptional, and that uh, I know as I was walking out of briefings when we were um, at our uh, base of operations, um, the stories I was hearing, just guys talking about on the side, um, and from different task forces, the stories they were talking about were the ones that our guys did or experienced, um, and to hear that just makes me recognize the the blessing it was. when you want to go and operate, we train all the time to do that, um, that we got a chance to operate at the level we did. Um, And so that, I look at that as as just a huge, um, the opportunity presented itself and our our personnel were able to function and just killed it. Um, And that was known. Um, I got some great kudos from the IST leaders, two of them. Um, In fact, on day three, they called me on the phone because they were worried about us, about how tired and that we needed to get a a work uh, rest ratio going. And I kind of laughed, I'm like, dude, I'll take it. Just give me more people, replace us. But until you do, there's people we got to get right now. Um, But their kudos uh, were huge to hear that. Um, And so it just goes to the testament of the opportunity was there, our personnel, they stepped up and they nailed it. Um, And not just doing the rescue part, dealing with the community, working on the shelters, getting people placed, and then working with the other task forces helping the other task forces, teaching them how to take care of their equipment. JP taught uh, boat motor classes to other task forces that were having problems with their motors. Um, just the, uh, the awesomeness of people saw a need and just stepped up and did it. Um, and didn't ask really why, they just took care of it. And so uh, it just it's a testament to our program here. And, and also the people we have, have here in our agency, um, that we have a lot of great people.
0: Well, thanks chief for taking the time to uh, speak with us today about the deployment Um, this is going to be the conclusion of our podcast thanks for listening
1: and we'll see you next time all right thanks chief hoey for uh talking us about talking to us about your deployment in houston And uh, for you, Jeremy, in assisting with the interview, be sure to check out next week's interview where Fire Captain Jeff Hughes leads in a panel discussion um, in regards to what the department is doing for uh, cancer prevention. Until then, let's watch out for each other, and we'll talk to you soon.